One of these days we'll come out with a red letter edition of the Psalter. People will be very pleasantly surprised to see how many passages have been taken in the mouth of our Lord. Well, uh, we are in a study of the book of Colossians, not just the overview of the uh, book uh, as we have considered it in weeks past, but specifically a couple matters related to worship or to various, um, I don't know what you want to say, unusual practices among us. Why do we do what we do is a question that I sometimes get. I got it a lot recently, and so I'm trying to cover with this series a number of particulars. And uh, we turn back again to Colossians chapter 2 now, and I'll start reading in verse 11. We'll consider especially verses 16 and 17, though, tonight, festivals, shadows, and Christ. Colossians 2, verse verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Amen. Once more, we, let us pray. Our Father, we pray that this word of Christ dwelling in us richly might so instruct us that teaching and admonishing us we, as the priests of your new covenant, might offer you an acceptable sacrifice only through Jesus Christ our Lord, and pray that you would uh, likewise bless the resurrection power spoken of in this very passage to free us and our souls for your service. In his name we pray. Amen. In our family, we celebrate birthdays. Uh, you probably do too. With our kids especially, we follow certain beloved American traditions, wrapping up presents, maybe blowing up balloons and decorating the house, gathering family and friends, lighting candles, and singing the birthday song. Uh, Do you do that too? Why do you do that? Did you find it in the Bible? Well, if you looked in the Bible, you would only find that there are two references to birthdays and even birthday presents. Anyone? Anyone? Hmm? I suppose so, but uh, actually, birthday, as uh, as uh, as specified here, uh, not 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 simply uh, the day of the birth, which does have a present associated at least some days afterward. Um, we're told of two birthdays in the Bible. Anybody? I'll give them to you. Otherwise, I just thought this would be a fun way to start off here. So, Pharaoh's birthday and Herod's birthday, both which interestingly involved a beheading. I hope you don't follow that tradition. Um, Why do we follow this tradition? Uh, The origin of which, of course, is partly pagan and partly American, completely human. 
Um, you, you say it's, well, it's just something fun that people do in our culture. It's certainly not a religious thing. It's no more religious than a hundred other traditions that we enjoy from fireworks on the 4th to singing the national anthem before the ball game. It's not a matter of our Christian faith or practice that are biblically regulated. It has nothing to do with our worship. It is a sentimental and cultural activity. Great. I fully agree. But as uh, Christians, we, we might, for example, pray at a birthday party, at least give thanks for the food, right? You might even sing, happy birthday, God bless you. Well, true, you say, but that's only because we're giving thanks to God for all things, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. It is all to the glory of God, but a birthday party uh, has nothing to do with our Christian duty or practice. You know that there are some folks, (coughs) Jehovah's Witnesses, that uh, don't believe in birthdays because it's pagan. Well, uh, these things have nothing to do with our Christian duty or practice. If a Christian doesn't want to have a birthday party, fine. You are certainly under no biblical obligation to have one, beheading or not. If a Christian didn't want cake or didn't want presents or wanted some other tradition, all well and good. It's totally up to them. We're free to have birthday parties. We're free not to have birthday parties as Christians if someone felt Christian compulsion to have a birthday party. Well, obviously, that would be silly, if not just wrong. We are free to celebrate our birthdays how we please, if we please, so long as we do all things lawful and give thanks. And if we don't celebrate them, we likewise give thanks. And if it's a sentimental cultural tradition that your family enjoys together, well, I'm part of the club. What about Christian cultural traditions? What do you mean, Christian cultural traditions? I mean, we, we have quite a number of Christian traditions that are likewise not found in the Bible, but which are very much actually at the center of the life and worship of the church, at least many churches, historically speaking. Hmm. Well, now I say we run into some trouble, both biblically and even historically. We think about that on a day called Easter in the English and Germanic languages, uh, virtually every other language that's not Germanic, by the way, do you know what the day is called? Anyone? It's a Presbyterian church, I realize, so, you know, you're probably scared to answer, but, you know, uh, everybody else calls it Passover, uh, Ishtar, Easter, there's this Oster, there's this connection with the Germanic language. Not trying to make any argument about pagan origins, simply to say everybody else in the world calls it Passover in nearly every other language. Should we celebrate Passover slash Easter? And if so, how does God want us to celebrate it? Well, obviously for some it means the octave, the eight-day feast. Blank faces. Um, others, it's the end of the Great Lent. And Lazarus Saturday? Holy Week? Have you heard of that? Others, it's the Feast of Feast. Sounds good to me. Maybe it's the day of sunrise services, new outfits, special flowers, or lighting of a Paschal candle. Maybe for you it's the day of bonfires and festival of special food. I have some powerful memories growing up, as I'm sure most of you do. And the truth is we are so enthusiastic about our traditions, especially how we grew up, we uh, pause with concern when we see that really none of that is in the Bible. We have so many different traditions to choose from, and when it gets mixed up so deeply with our religious observance, 
Well, it's no wonder that the church has fought tooth and nail over them. I I won't give you the history, which would take a series of sermons, if not a series of Sunday schools, but perhaps one of the earliest rifts, um, that is to say schisms, breaks in the church was when Pope Victor I broke fellowship with all the bishops of the churches of Asia who didn't agree with him how or whether or when Easter should be celebrated slash Passover. That was way back in AD 200. You'll know, in fact, that uh, this is Roman Catholic Easter, right? The rest of the church celebrates it next week. Why do they do that, you ask? Well, it's because the church had this ecumenical council. They all got together at Nicaea at 325, where they decided that it should be celebrated on the first Sunday after the full moon, after the spring equinox. Right? Spring equinox, full moon, the next Sunday is Easter. You say, well, uh, what, ha- what happened then? Why don't we all celebrate it on the same day anymore? Uh, well, there's this pope in Rome, and he said, why don't we celebrate it with the Jew- on, the, on the day of the Jewish Passover? The rest of the church said, we all agreed! Well, we're doing it the pope's way. Um, I could describe some of the ancient traditions and customs that developed around the day to greater and greater fanfare as things were piled on, as the tradition gave way to more tradition, and if a little is good, a little more is better. That would also take a series of sermons. But I'll cut to the chase and ask in this letter to the Colossians, what should we be doing? What does God want us to do? And since I realize this is such a personal and touchy subject, as you're all looking at me with considerable anxiety, like, David, you're not going to ruin my Christmas and Easter, are you? Um, I'm going to give you my conclusion right up front, okay? So I'm going to put all my cards on the table, and later I'll show you how I deal them out, but I'm just going to give you my cards so that you won't worry what I'm holding, okay? Um, Do you go do the American thing and hide some eggs or go on a hunt? Fine. Do you not celebrate it at all? Fine. You are absolutely under no biblical obligation uh, to do so. Maybe you want to have some family tradition of your own. Serve up soup in the rescue mission every year at this time in the spring. That's completely fine and up to you. Some people feel a Christian compulsion, and then they want to put that on other people. That's where we definitely get into trouble. When God has said no such thing, we also need to be silent. You remember that there was this case uh, where uh, Jesus and his disciples were eating bread with hands that had not been washed according to the tradition of the elders. In fact, it was supposed to have come directly from God through Moses to the elders as part of the oral Torah. In other words, not the written Torah, but there's this oral tradition that was supposed to have come down from God also. And Jesus and his disciples were ignoring it. Now, it's about the most innocuous tradition you could possibly imagine. Washing hands before bread? Come on. Everybody should do that, right? But when it becomes a Christian compulsion, or a Jewish compulsion, when, when people say, oh, God wants you to do it this way, Well, in vain they worship me, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Yes, 
Every Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is celebrated according to the Lord's own practice and appointment on the first day of the week. Nothing especially different or holy about this day. We must not strive ourselves or pressure others to observe anything less or anything more than what is appropriate on any particular Lord's day. It is, of course, the time of Passover, and we can make the historical observation in the connection It certainly happened at this time so many years ago. We are at liberty to choose songs and passages as we please, uh, recognizing some people have a religious tradition or compulsion that they feel they ought to do at this time of year. We come then to Paul's uh, exhortation in Romans chapter 14 about people that have a conscience about this matter or that, where the church should be accommodating. He says, look, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That is to say, I'm not here to try to change your mind, even as the apostle will explain things. I seek to explain things. But he says, look, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. But therefore, let, let, let no one judge another anymore but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Let us therefore pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. We're not seeking here. We, you know, at the church, we seek to accommodate people's conscience in a biblical way. Some things that we will not put upon everybody, but if it's a matter of can we choose certain songs, can we choose certain passages or themes, are there other ways that we can do those things that make for edification as well as peace? Well, Paul was anyone's doormat if that was the need. Um, And so it is that uh, the church doesn't have practices of Lent or other requirements, things that you ought to be doing if you are doing those things, even under uh, conscientious compulsion. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. If you're not under such compulsion, realize that whatever is not from faith is sin. You must not be put under compulsion that's my conclusion. Does everyone understand? Clear as mud? You say, what am, I, what am I saying? Maybe if I go through the passage, things will become a little clearer. Clear. I hope it at least puts you at ease. Uh, but the Lord has given us 52 holy days a year. In this, we greatly rejoice. What he's given is what we practice and what we seek to put before you. If there's things that the Lord has not given, there's things that the Lord has not required, Uh, If you feel that you must observe them, do it unto the Lord, but uh, we will not be putting it on you or others as much as it lies in us. Well, let's come to the passage now. And especially in the passage, we might notice the emphasis on the resurrection. Did you notice in the passage, it was mentioned a few times, that the resurrection of Jesus has some practical meaning for us. What should the resurrection mean for us? In the, in the letter, it has a positive as well as a negative 
application. He starts with the negative, actually, in chapter 2. Negatively, the resurrection means we should not submit ourselves to the principles of this world, the traditions of men, or any self-imposed religion. See, I really don't understand the relationship there. Part of it is, uh, I think, that uh, Easter is one step in our mind removed from Passover. We don't even call it the same thing in English. What's Passover all about? Freed from slavery, right? The Lord bringing his people out, new, new, new life. Okay, see if you can follow, follow along how that likewise applies. This probably is not what leaps to your mind when you think about observing Christ's resurrection. But this is what is emphasized in Colossians chapter 2. Let me show you. As uh, Paul is uh, speaking already in Colossians, by way of quick review, in chapter 1 of all the glories of Christ, which I so excitedly preached to you and which I love to preach on, not these small technical matters, right? But after he preaches in the, of the preeminence of Christ and all of his glories, he gives a number of dire warnings in chapter 2. Dire warnings summarized in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through the philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And he goes uh, hand over hand in order to deal with a great number of matters. Uh, Jewish... Uh, circumcisers and uh, mystics and pseudo-Christian angel worshipers and um, probably Phrygian magic and some other weird things that are referenced in there. Basically, if anyone tells you, oh, you need something else, Jesus plus, there's something that you haven't received that I can give you. There is some doctrine or practice that will make you more holy an observation that you will find useful and beneficial in your Christian life. We must reject these out of hand, the danger being even to the loss of salvation in extreme cases, as he mentions in the chapter. Well, we'll take as an example before us as one that I read. Uh, certainly some Jewish Christians wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. This was a big deal at the time because you remember that for so many centuries, if you wanted to join God's people... Well, the males had to be circumcised, and now things are changed in Christ. But all the things that they'd worked out in the past are, are having to be worked out again in the church. No, 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 Paul says. Don't you know what the resurrection means? That you've been freed? Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Jesus died and was raised by the power of God. You also have died being buried with him in your baptism into Christ, being raised with him from the dead. And the first direct reference here to resurrection has to do with this matter of should or can Gentiles be circumcised? You, you, you might not, again, have put this together. But what he's doing is he's trying to, in this whole chapter, not trying to, what he's doing is he's communicating uh, how you are freed from all these things of the past or of the present uh, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
This was a very pressing question, though, in New Testament times because there was a certain group in the church agitating, no, 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 the Gentiles have to have this done. The question is not simply must they be circumcised, although that was a large part of it, but even can the Gentiles be circumcised? I mean, Jewish Christians were suffering and being ostracized because they were going into the homes of uncircumcised men and eating with them, which was against their law. Is there something sinful about circumcision? Did God say Gentiles can't be circumcised? Well, why can't they all be circumcised then, for the, at least for the peace and unity of the church? Paul's strong answer is that no one in Christ may submit, for Christ's sake, to anything that he is not required. That's just the overall principle of the whole chapter. And elsewhere, stand fast, he writes to the Galatians, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. As soon as it's Christ plus, then it's the plus that makes the difference. And as soon as the plus makes the difference, Christ will go by the wayside. You, brethren, have been called to liberty, he writes. Okay, if it's a matter of Christian circumcision, circumcision being under compulsion by religious constraints or Christ or something else, absolutely not. Paul gives a stinging rebuke here and elsewhere. There is no religious tradition or ceremony, Jewish or otherwise, that may be required among the people of God who have died to all that and live only to Jesus. Now, of course, if Timothy, under no religious compulsion whatsoever, wants to go to uh, become like a Jew, to win the Jews, can, can he be circumcised if he wants to, if there's no religious compulsion? Well, sure. Acts 16.3, Paul wanted to have Timothy go with him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. He became like a Jew to win the Jews. There. It's not Christian circumcision. There's no compulsion. There's no religious significance whatsoever. And if you want to wash your hands before you eat bread and there's no religious compulsion, go right ahead. Okay? You are free to be circumcised or uncircumcised. You are free to eat bread with washed hands or unwashed hands. The principle is Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. And as soon as any other compulsion other than what Christ has given is laid upon his disciples, an important boundary has been crossed. A tradition has assumed the power of Christ's law, and he would have his children walk in total freedom. Christ alone is Lord of us. Again in verse 13, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Resurrection reference number two. Having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. All right? Um, what, can a, what can circumcision add to the death and resurrection of Christ? He was put to death for your sins. He was raised to life for your justification. There is nothing, I mean nothing, that you can possibly add to that. Skipping down to verse 16, there was also this attempt by the Jewish Christians, apparently, to have the Gentiles observe their religious calendar, also referenced, by the way, in uh, Galatians and probably in Romans as well. A very uh, common biblical triplet that in the Hebrew Bible then is given 
Uh, if you don't know, time and time and time again, the whole Jewish calendar, the whole calendar um, in, in all of its intricacy is summarized very often in the Hebrew Bible in these three words, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Festival, new moon, Sabbath. It's the order. It's the common way of speaking about it. It speaks about the, the whole calendar of Israel. So we, we read verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink, um, assuming the Jewish food or drink, or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. No, 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 Paul counters, and uh, we'll skip down to verse 20. Look, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world, again, death, life, do you subject yourself to regulations, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things that perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things need have an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Well, here we are. Negatively speaking, the resurrection, or more accurately, the fact that Christ has died and is now raised to everlasting life, and you in him have died and are free in him to live. That we in him should not observe any other religious observance from men that has not come from the Lord Christ. Men are not lords of our conscience. They have no right, as the passage says, to judge us, to impose upon us any food or festival or tradition or anything else other than what Christ has given. We are complete in him. Negatively, we died to that. But positively, we have been raised to something else entirely. Um, I'll mention what in a second. But uh, practically speaking, you know how it went to the church, right? Uh, first there's Passover slash Easter. Then, uh, well, then there's Monday, Thursday. Then there's Good Friday. Then there's Lent. Then there's the Lenten... Uh, uh, the, the great Lenten season didn't make it into the West so much. Um, things are built up every year. If some is good, more is better. And uh, more and more people are asking me, uh, why don't I observe this? What do you do in your church? Well, maybe our church has some practice of their own, uh, which I want to encourage and affirm them in. If you have some conscientious practice, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, you need to observe it unto the Lord. But I do feel like Augustine, who groaned already in the 300s over the rapid increase of what he called the burden of all these ceremonies and feasts, though he himself was baptized by Ambrose, Easter Vigil, 387. Um, a rapid increase in these things did, in the minds of some, help the church to win the world. But you see, that's a two-way street. If you're bringing the world into the church, it's not always the best idea. We died to this world. We live to Christ. Negatively, we cannot submit to any of these things. We should let no one judge us or condemn us for anything other than what Christ himself has said. That's the negative. There is the positive, though, that he gives starting in chapter 3. Positively, what does the resurrection mean for us? 
that we are to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what the resurrection is to signify. If then, chapter 3, verse 1, you were raised with Christ, resurrection reference, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And then a great number of specifics are given. And this is the significance of the resurrection. This is what the, 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 the day of resurrection should mean to you. I realize, again, this is probably not what comes to mind. If somebody asks you the significance of resurrection day, that probably wouldn't just spring into your mind. I should, I should die to sin and live to righteousness. But this is the biblical emphasis. Some of our traditions, you see, just start to, over time, obscure the, the truth so that the biblical doctrines are not connected with the biblical applications. But this is the biblical application that Paul gives, and not here only. And this is one reason that Paul warns that man-made religious practices, while they have an appearance of wisdom, are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What should the resurrection be preaching to you? What should it mean to you? What should the proper observance of it be? Well, we are taught in several places uh, here in Colossians 3 a number of ways in which this practical godliness is to be applied. You might t- turn also to uh, Romans, uh, I should say, some of which we've already covered in the series. But if you want to turn to another passage here, Romans 6, verse 4. Romans 6, verse 4. Very similar idea, but very different context. Um, therefore, 6 verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, even so, we should, what? Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. This is what the resurrection means to us. This is what a good celebration of Jesus' resurrection should mean. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be united in the resurrection, in likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, for he who died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, then we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that that Having been raised from the dead, he di- Christ dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. grace. All right. Well said. According to last year's Pew Research, 62% of Americans report attending worship on Easter Sunday. Most of them, given that number, will go back to their sinful lives, yelling at their wives, running down their husbands, 
hating people at work, cursing their neighbors, enjoying their everyday sinful lives. But they'll be right back next Easter. Because Easter, to them, has a very different meaning. And the traditions associated with it are pleasing even to the carnal man. To them, resurrection means the wrong thing. It means for us, not only do we have a blessed hope, but that we can live and surely will live in the power of Christ's new and everlasting life. When days are made up by men, which days become more holy, more important, I ask you? What happens when men start making up holy days? Are the days that God has set apart more holy or the days that man has set apart more holy? In other words, just talking about the average man on the street, even the Christian man on the street, are, let's say, Christian and Easter, other things could be mentioned, man's holy days more sacred than Sunday? Uh, You know, the answer is obvious. As soon as man creates his holy days, instantly that deprecates the day that God has set apart. And the traditions then associated with man's days begin to overwhelm the biblical calls to sanctify the day as he has called us to do so. Doesn't God like holy days, someone will ask? All these days that God made in the old, um, can't we have days in the new? Well, here certainly Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the three great festivals, as well as the rest of the Jewish calendar, must not have any other religious observance. Passover slash Easter, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, those festivals are out. The new moons are out. The Sabbaths of old are out. This became a pressing question in our history in the Church of Scotland, fifth article of Perth, where the king wanted Scotland to begin to observe Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, and Pentecost. And a great deal of head-scratching and soul-searching was done. Even Geneva, they were observing those. Understand that if days which had formerly been appointed by God, listen, if the days which God himself had appointed in the past could no longer be observed in the church today, even God's days were out, what can be said then of man's days which were never allowed in? God wanted all the old days and months and seasons and years to be fulfilled in Christ. And here we meet on the Sunday, 52 times a year, to celebrate the resurrection. Not just once a year, 52 times a year. And to have a holy day of holy celebration. We remember the King Jeroboam, 1 Kings 12, 32-33, where we see this problem multiplied. There at Bethel, Jeroboam installed priests in the high high places, which he had made. He made sacrifices on the altar, which he had made at Bethel, on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month which he devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burnt incense. Um, In other words, Jeroboam came up with his own priesthood that he made. 
though that God had given that priesthood no authority. He installed them on the high places, which he made, which were certainly convenient for the worshipers rather than having to go to Jerusalem in the south. He came up with offerings on dates, which he devised in his own heart. He made his own festival days. And uh, these days were complete with incense and sacrifices offered to Jehovah. And this is henceforth called the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam had many sins, but uh, this is what the scripture says, that uh, Jeroboam then made Israel to sin. It's not just that God likes priests, days, festivals, uh, so forth. Uh, God appoints his own festivals, priests, days, and so forth. And what was so popular among the northern kingdom was actually the cause of their undoing in so many ways. It was, in their thought, a great religious celebration in God's mind, a great blasphemy and travesty. Jeroboam made them sin. Ignatius, who was martyred in AD 107, said, Be not led astray by strange doctrines or by old fables which are profitless. For now, if we are living according to Judaism, we confess that we have not received grace. If then they who walk in ancient customs came to a new hope, then we no longer live for the Sabbath, but for the Lord's day on which he sprang up through him and his death. That is the uh, application that I'd like to stress to you. I hope it's clear enough. I hope I'm not laying anything new or awkward on your conscience, the very reverse of what I'm seeking to do. I will say that this is the application of the general principle of Christian liberty, one that is very dear and blood-bought, not only by Christ's blood, but by a great many martyrs in the history of the church, that God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left you free from the doctrines and the commandments of men in order that you might serve the Lord without fear. And if you have some compulsion, some religious observance that for the Lord's sake, according to how you read his word, that you feel that you must obey, we likewise will edify you and as much as it depends upon us, seek to encourage you even if the apostle would judge you as weak in faith or judge me as weak in faith for observing a day to the Lord or not observing a day to the Lord. Even if they're wrong, Paul says, he doesn't mind saying, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve not to cause a stumbling or uh, cause to fall in our brother's way, but to do the things that make for edification and for peace. Anything then which is contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship is not to be introduced so that if we believe such doctrines or obey such commandments out of conscience, we betray true liberty of conscience, says our confession. Well, um, our Lord is uh, zealous for us to be able to come before him and rejoice Part of that is being able to come together, perhaps with different traditions, different backgrounds, different memories in our mind. And even if they are dear to us, even if they're things that we are observing perhaps at home, when we come together, we come together on the Lord's terms in order that we might uh, uh, together offer him that in which um, we, we agree. We try to emphasize here the things that make for agreement 
and uh, things by which we were able to have peace and to edify one another. And so that's why we do what we do. It's why we don't have an extended calendar of events in this past week or other, other matters. Um, do we uh, judge or condemn uh, people, even people in our congregation that have some other? Absolutely not, says the apostle. We, we seek to have peace and to edify one another but we seek then each to stand before the Lord and to please him. So it is that if we have received our life from him, we together offer it back to him. And this is, I think, why people have come here from, from different backgrounds, of different convictions. This is why you can look around the small congregation even here tonight, see people with a, a number of different backgrounds, church backgrounds, convictions, still uh, very much. And, and why have you come? Not because everybody agrees with you, but because you know that uh, we also are committed fully to the word and that we will encourage you to walk according to your conscience and uh, seek in every way possible to accommodate you, to build you up, and to have you serve the Lord according to your way. Whatever does not come from faith is sin, and that is why we do the things that we do. Having been raised, therefore, to the newness of life, we together receive one another even as Christ has received us. Even Christ, said the apostle, did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ has received us to the glory of God. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we too uh, might be given strength to stand according to the convictions of our own minds, uh, observing the day, not observing the day, eating or not eating, but in all things, giving thanks, and seeking to please you. We pray that uh, through these things that all in our congregation might be encouraged, uh, that we stand together in the grace of Christ. We, we pray that you would continue to give our congregation this uh, sense of um, common conviction, and peace, even if we uh, have um, different matters of heart, we seek to have Christ above all and Christ preeminent in all. And may this be what brings us together. Many people come from such a variety of backgrounds, Lord, do you know. People, people wander uh, many, many years from you and happen in this congregation and wonder.